Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, there's no comedy intro today, partly because I'm too exhausted to write one, but also because it took us pretty much the whole week to even figure out what the topics for this show were. And then once we figured out what the topics for this show were, they were a little on the dark side. Um, so so be forewarned, I guess. But there won't be, they won't be totally dark, and we won't be dark. We'll be lively and fun. We'll be good companions to you. Uh, let me tell you who we uh, are today on The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable, Jim Chapdelaine, an Emmy Award-winning musician, producer, composer, recording engineer, and a patient advocate for people with rare cancers. Rand Richards-Cooper is a novelist, essay and critic. He writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine these days. Uh, and and this is a sad, although this isn't really your last appearance, right? You'll, you'll, you'll appear yeah, something I'll be back and you'll forth. be back and forth. Mm-hmm. All right. So I don't have to feel that way. But <laughs> Teresa Kramer is a writer and editor of eContent Magazine, a founding editor of The Cut. And I would say we, I didn't know this until mm-hmm. Wednesday, but the eighth anniversary of our show was uh, on Wednesday. Wolfie mm-hmm. keeps track of these things and informed me of that. And you've probably been, been on this show almost since the beginning, right? We had you as a writing essays and right. all kinds of stuff like mm-hmm. that. And now you're moving to Brattleboro. We'll probably never hear from you again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, for you've been here mm-hmm. with us for eight years and certainly yeah. we're one of the earliest nose panelists uh, too. As I think everybody here today was one of the, among the earliest mm-hmm. nose panelists. All right. Well, that's enough in-house stuff. Uh, but we um, – <clears throat> I just wanted to say this at the top because then I'll run out of time at the bottom and won't be able to say it. So uh, to whatever extent you're not around, we will miss you. Uh, And then if you're around a lot, we won't miss you so much. I'll just show up on your doorstep. Brattleboro. It's like you're moving to Amsterdam or something like Mm -hmm. that. So I don't don't see it. We'll come up and we'll do a show from Brattleboro. Sweet. Um, All right. So uh, let me tell you what. (laughs) After thrashing around, (laughs) there were more than 50 emails sent back and forth to get this show ready. After thrashing around for days and days, here's what we've come up with. Um, uh, In the second segment, we'll have a a conversation about the latest round of anguishing, I guess is the right word to say, uh, about the whole question of colorblind casting as opposed to casting for both Broadway plays and movies and things like that, casting that almost necessitates a certain kind of racial choice. So on the one hand, you want everybody to be able to play er everything. You want Oscar Isaacs, who's Guatemalan uh, and Cuban, to play Hamlet with Keegan-Michael Key as Horatio, et cetera. On the other hand, there are times where that kind of blindness doesn't seem to work. So uh, we'll give you some cases in point. We'll talk about that. And then we'll also talk about the fact that um, as the Amazon Whole Foods thing came together, prices suddenly fell at Whole Foods. And the news media treated that as like a big story. I mean, not as big as like the floods in Houston, but almost. And what sort of distance... Well, I mean, I think there's many things that we'll be able to say about that. So anyway, that's in the offing. Uh, Right now, though, we're going to talk about Louis C.K. Louis C.K. obviously is uh, one of the most entertaining and um, reigning comedians uh, of his time. Uh, He specializes in going out on a limb. Uh, He is often amazingly able to take people out on that limb with him. Uh, And... 
um, even way, way out to the edges of that limb. But there have been some accusations that have been dogging him, uh, never really in the form of a formal complaint. But uh, digital media being what they are, they're sort of there. So before we even plunge into this, let's at least hear a little of Louis C.K. being Louis C.K. Here's a joke. Why did the chicken cross the road? Because there was a black guy walking behind him. And he was, he was nervous. He was new to the city, this chicken. And he was like, I feel like he's following me, but I'm not sure. So then he thought, maybe if I cross the road, then if he crossed the road, he's definitely following me. So he crossed the road, and the black guy went home. He's living his life. And the chicken was like, I'm such a racist. And he felt, he felt bad. About a month later, a black guy ate the chicken. A uh, different black guy. I'm just telling you what happened. <laughs> By the way, don't be upset, because this is not a racist joke. This joke is not racist. The chicken was racist. The chicken was definitely racist. But that's chickens. Chickens are very closed down and suspicious and prejudiced. You kind of can't blame them, considering that their species murder rate is 100%. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to order a pit crew in here. It turns out Rand Cooper has no sound in his headphones. Uh, so he just missed the entire Louis C.K. Uh, thing. But we could summarize it for you, but it's, it's just a monologue. Um, and um, so that has nothing to do with what we're about to talk about, except that maybe it does. Um, what's happened over time is that uh, a number of uh, female comedians have, have said that Louis C.K. has behaved in a creepy way towards them. Uh, that was the uh, exact way that a comedian named Jen Kirkman uh, described it. She said a male comic – she said about 10 years ago, a male comic said something kind of creepy to me. In no way physically violated my space. I did not see his body parts. He did not corner me. It was just – a couple of creepy incidents. Um, she didn't feel so threatened, she said, so much as annoyed, describing the encounter as a breach of trust women often have to deal with from male colleagues and friends. Tignataro uh, recently uh, took it a little bit further. She, First of all, she said that she and Louis C.K. had an incident before her series One Mississippi, of which he's an executive producer, even started. She declined to offer any specifics, but she also sort of said that he should deal with these accusations against him. They have mostly come as either blind items um, in, on various websites or uh, from secondhand sources, especially Roseanne Barr, who said that a number of uh, – I think she said she had lost count of the number of women comedy writers or comedians who said that Louis C.K. had um, done something sexually very weird with them, maybe even a situation where they were locked in the room with him. Um, um, well, anyway, so um, uh, we've been debating this a little bit on our email threads. Um, so for the prosecution, <laughs> well, so Teresa Grant Kramer, you're the one who brought I, this up to begin with. Anyway, right. so, so how, how does it work for you? Well, so he, what interests me about this story is the way in which it's been largely ignored, right? It sort of shows up on Gawker and so people dismiss it or the, it, but it, in a way, it mirrors the Cosby story to me because for many years, if not decades, sort of allegations against Cosby were an open secret among many people and just no one did anything about it until sort of his power had waned and people weren't ready to defend him anymore. And Hannibal Burris was just the latest person to, you know, sort of call him out for the many rape accusations against him. 
And although CK has not been accused of rape or anything like that yet, um, it just seems to me that people are sort of like, well, he's at the pinnacle of his power right now and we love him and he's funny. So we're not going to say anything about it until later. And I, I just find that fascinating. And it's been bouncing around in my head for years. And when Tig finally came out and said something, she's sort of the comedian closest to his stature, I think, who has said anything about mm-hmm. this. So I thought that this might be the breaking point. Uh, for the defense, Attorney I, Jim Chapterly. I think it's a pretty complicated issue because – and I think the Cosby comparison is a little difficult to make because Cosby has this enormous record of allegations and, and a long trail of people with actual names who have come out. And as I scoured the internet for this, willing, I'm willing to believe it. I'm willing to disbelieve it. But I think we have to be careful with celebrities that we aren't – the allegation alone is is damning, right? So now it's always going to hover around him, whether he's guilty or innocent. I'm not, and we don't know that. So I could find two or three instances where it was vaguely alluded to it being him. And I don't want to sound like I'm defending the behavior because mm-hmm. I'm not. But I but I don't think there's any proof that he's guilty of the behavior. Um, I, I love Tignataro. Her real spat with Louis is that he's the executive producer of her show and probably gets paid for it. Um, it's you know, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson are currently executive producing True Detective 3 and they have nothing to do with it. So I'm sure there's some contractual things that go into that stuff. So it's hard to unpack this in any logical way for me without thinking we're, we're either ignoring a problem or we're damaging a celebrity. And I'm not sure which one of those is true. But I think you have to be careful in having a discussion like this because no matter how this discussion goes, we're pouring a little gas on the fire. It's turned to the Solomonic like wisdom of <laughs> well, leave us in two well, Just a clarification because I was trying to fiddle with my earphones when we were setting this up. Have we actually said specifically what the behavior was? We haven't said – OK. Well, first of all, one reason I didn't say it is really – first of all, these, these accusations follow kind of a weird gradient. There's two people, Tignataro – uh, and, uh, and Jen Kirkman, who have specifically said – Kirkman has done this without actually naming Louis C.K. but describing him kind of in a way that it's kind of clear that it's him. Uh, but she doesn't really describe any particular behavior. She said he was sexually creepy with her. Tignataro will not say anything. She said – she has said that she had an incident with him and it is very hard to unthread that as Jim said from the fact that they seem to be having an uncomfortable business relationship right now. She wouldn't say what the incident was. So now we're down to Roseanne Barr really who has said that she has heard from a number of women in comedy that Louis C.K. and I, first of all, I, I hesitate putting this on the air for all the reasons that Jim is uncomfortable with it. It's just such a secondhand accusation. But that he and has it's Roseanne Barr. <laughs> yes, yeah. Situ- I, I would be uncomfortable if my status in life, my professional or personal status in life, was compromised by something Roseanne Barr said that she'd heard from a lot of people. Uh, I, that would bother me. That that was the basis on. I'm sure I could be dragged down under much more. Uh, uh, solid uh, uh, circumstances. But anyway, she said that Louis C.K. masturbates uh, in front of women when it's – they're in like dressing rooms or something. And like the that. Gawker piece mm-hmm. referred mm-hmm. to two women who had accompanied him back to his room uh, and and he had started to make some, some jokes, some sort of mm-hmm. racy jokes about exposing himself and then lo and behold, he did. With with all the caveats allegedly. that what's that allegedly right allegedly with all the caveats that we put here so so I don't know that much about Louis C K maybe this is a context to put it in um, 
I've been reading, a, uh, and this is giving away already my endorsement from the end, but I've been reading a book called The Naughty 90s by a Vanity Fair editor named David Friend. And it's one of those look back at the decade uh, books. To me, it's a little shocking that the 90s can already be looked back to. I sort of feel like we're kind of still, still in them. But uh, it's his the thesis of this book that our a bunch of preoccupations having to do with erotic life, uh, sexual enhancements, uh, things that were kept in the sort of semi-twilight now became explicit uh, facts uh, and obsessions of American life. Uh, in our obsession with uh, sex scandals, in, the, in, in transgressive forms of humor and comedy, in our new openness with sexual enhancements of all kinds. And so when you're reading this book and trying to remember back and think, well, you know, did, did, did some things seem new at the time? I do remember late 80s, early 90s, listening for the first time to Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 being you know sort of stunned. Uh, here it was AM radio, and and things <laughs> were being discussed <laughs> with a frank anatomical hilarity uh, that that I remember at one point stopping the car and thinking, oh, is he really going to talk about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he's going to talk about his own anatomy, mm-hmm. um, and so so f- with such fond humor. So there's a there's a way in which, especially for comics who have a sort of transgressive kind of sexual humor that that the the act and the the personal crazed magnetism they they, they blur together mm-hmm. and 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 I, I think with him from what i understand mm-hmm. of him you know it's 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 hard to know exactly where to draw the line between persona shtick and and what becomes then a true transgression and a and a violation well one of the one of the things about the sort of accusations that have always um interested me is that they seem so on brand for him right like it you he sort of he sets himself up as basically a kind of bad person in his comedy <laughs> like he's that, you know he's not he's not bill cosby he's not cl- he's not scolding anyone he's not a clean comic he's not talking he talks about his family but awfully really dirtily or angrily or in unpleasant in an unpleasant manner. He has young daughters whom he's yeah. referred to in a Saturday Night Live monologue as <laughs> selfish little bitches. Yes. <laughs> so you're you're not entirely surprised. It's almost surprising that someone who has an outlet for that kind of those kinds of feelings would then need another sort of more secret outlet for those sorts of feelings. But um but at the same time, I've always thought like, yeah, well, this almost sort of makes sense as something he would do. Um, he constantly talks about masturbation on his show, right. in his stand-up, like it's not. And he's also got an entire monologue about how it's a wonder that women ever go out on dates with men because they are the number one threat to them. And he's like, why do you ever go out with us? And it's like, well, are you know, all right. So <laughs> you may be part of the problem, allegedly. But um, – but I also think like if he, if he if he is doing these things and he just admitted it and then got help, people would be like, yeah, all right. OK, like we're no one surprised by this at this point. And you never said you were perfect. Well, there's some you know, I think you're pointing to there's sort of some blurring on the on the front end of the, this sort of transaction, a blurring between the persona mm-hmm. and the action. But the 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 back the the eventual end of this is drearily familiar insofar as it involves women who are being shut up. Right. And you know, this is a season where we, we, we've seen powerful media figures, um, uh, 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 Roger Ailes, uh, the Bill O'Reilly thing, 
and and there's a similarity. The president. The president. Well, but I think the similarity, just since you were occupying the 90s a few minutes ago, but Jim, the similarity that I see, particularly what Teresa says, is to Bill Clinton. Right. Bill Clinton is somebody that we we wanted to believe in for a whole bunch of other reasons. We didn't want to believe negative stories about him. We were willing to see women who were accusing Bill Clinton stigmatized and slut-shamed in certain ways at certain times because, first of all, it was just going to be incredibly politically inconvenient for him to go down in flames. But also, it, there was a cognitive dissonance problem, just in the same way that I really like Louis C.K. I think he's an incredibly important comedian. If comedy can be important, he he would symbolize that for me in a lot of ways. So I don't want this to be true about him. And I think for me, I then have to kind of an analyze that. I have to do an inventory of myself. How realistic am I about these charges? Well, Colin, so, what's interesting it, about that is that, is that in politics, we now have come to such a hyper-partisan moment that um, there's there's almost no willingness to entertain any inconvenient fact about your side. They're just dismissed as non-facts, as as, uh, as as canards. Um, but do you, so is there a sort of backwash of that same kind of hyper-partisanship into un unexpected realms of, of pop culture? I mean, does Louis C.K. have a constituency that – uh, aside from his power, does he have a constituency that is just instinctively going to defend him uh, when something inconvenient comes up? I'm not sure about that, but I would say it's it's really important right this minute even, and, and this is sort of a, a thing that I was a little concerned about having this discussion, mm -hmm. is there's a little tilt in the discussion already as if mm -hmm. he's probably doing this, right? Mm -hmm. We're all kind of talking as if he probably is doing this. I don't think we can get there yet. Bill Clinton aside, um, w which made sort of sense because he did have some named uh, uh, a trail of, of women who had uh, allegations against him that seemed like they're probably true, right? So, yeah, you're disappointed when one of these people fails you morally like this. But with Bill Clinton, you have to accept it. And I would be prepared to accept it in a second with Louis C.K. if these allegations are substantiated more than two unnamed girls in a room and more than these sort of oblique references to this. And, and, and I hate to discount Roseanne Barr, but, but I'm going to. Um, I, we should say that the only time he's ever publicly um, commented on this to the best of my knowledge, uh, he was very dismissive. It was in an interview with a writer from Vulture, which is part of New York Magazine. Um, he was asked about this. He essentially called the whole thing fake news. He said, I don't care about that. That's nothing to me. That's not real. Pressed further, he then added, you can't touch stuff like that. There's one more thing I want to say about this, and it's important. If you need your public profile to be all positive, you're sick in the head. I do the work I do, and what happens next, I can't look after. So my thing is that I try to speak to the work whenever I can, just to the work and not to my life, which was sort of started out as a denial and kind of turned yeah, it, into it, a non-denial. It's a little squirrely. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I don't know. I, I feel as though there's a way in which – there's some truth, Teresa, in what he's saying. It goes back to what you were saying about him, which is that, yeah, on the one hand, one thing he could do is apologize and go to therapy and blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. The other thing he could do is say, no, I really do represent – I mean all of his work, including the, the series that he had – 
was sort of about guys with issues, you know, guys yeah. with issues that they often weren't handling very well either. His work mm-hmm. isn't really about people being successful. And failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Personal it's, failure. It's yeah. a lot about like, failure, too. One failure after another. So I don't know. I, 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 first of all, I think Jim's absolutely right that we've got to be very, very careful about convicting somebody with such kind of a flimsy web of accusations. Yeah, and especially well, even just in a circle of conversation like this where we're, we've started with allegations. Now, mm-hmm. And so what if it, it, now we have him, you know, publicly apologize, which all of that he well, should do if it's true. So even if so, let's say the we'll take the sort of locking women in a room and masturbating in front of them off the table. And if he's just like creeping women out in a corner of a club somewhere. Right. Like I. I think one of the things. Yes, exactly. That's happened to every woman who's ever talked to a man in a club. But um, so there's do we need the celebrities to be perfect, which I actually think is a problem, especially with comedians who are if you listen to Mark Maron's podcast long enough, you find out they are broken and disturbed people most of the time. And like but in his case, he's sort of being accused of actually hurting other people in some way and if 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 it was a drug problem i'd say whatever that you you know this is part of you know, for better or worse this has long been a part of being an artist of every sort for whatever reason and we you know you know, no one cares that Norman Mailer stabbed his wife. You know, <laughs> like this has been going on for. I think a few yeah, <laughs> but things that, it doesn't diminish his greatness, right? Like, well, Roman, it's Polans- only now Roman Polanski, Roman Polanski. Uh, Woody Allen, yes, I mean, Shatner has some. I mean, don't they? All these sort of people of privilege have something like this. None of that is is to. Uh, um, but the thing that's really interested me about this is that we just went through this, right, where we were mad at people for ignoring the Cosby allegations for years and years and years and then finally they all came rushing out and we made a thing. Now this is the chance to for people to actually get in on something early and either put a stop to it or demand an answer in some way. So are you and, are you going to take the assumption that he's absolutely guilty? No, but cuz this Cosby There was a point a, when Cosby had two or three allegations, right? And people didn't listen. And so, let to if we have not learned from that, yes. <laughs> but the, but if started. we haven't learned from that, any we haven't learned anything from that. And I'm not saying you need to shun people. I'm not someone who doesn't watch the Cosby Show because of this. So um, I'm just I'm not just sure. It's an why are people ignoring it? Well, like, yeah, I, I are think they it's ignoring it. We're well, talking about. Yeah, I think it's not. They I think have it's, been ignoring yeah. it for years. I, I think it's not an equivalency, just in the sense that at least for the fact pattern with Cosby, there's some very specific things that are very different. I mean, there's this consistent mm-hmm. fact pattern of drugging women and then violating them. Mm-hmm. Um, As Dave Chappelle said, he rapes, but he saves. Right. So he's, <laughs> yeah. This is the problem with comedians: is once they start talking about these things, they immediately become yeah. comedians again. Mm-hmm. But um, you know the the things that are being talked about with Louis C.K. and not once again to excuse something like that, but it's more on in the realm of creepy behavior, right? It's creepy behavior. He's not it's, physically assaulting. He's anybody. not physically assaulting anybody. It certainly would fall into the realm somewhere of sexual harassment under certain mm-hmm. circumstances, but. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think the first thing you have to do is have something more than sort of internet. Well, so that you, know, you use the phrase flimsy web of, of allegations, <laughs> and I think that's an apt phrase because the, it's the flimsiness of the web, but also its availability to us mm-hmm. 
in its capacity, in its readiness to serve up little factoids or rumors or gossip, which which before the current the current era, you wouldn't have had access to. Yeah. Well, we don't know um, that this is specifically f- from a Russian source. Yeah. Right? No, we don't. But so, but I mean, the process that happens. You know, this is this is part of the amazing democratization that that online life represents. What happens is, you know, you, all of us, we read this little piece or that little piece about, about Louis C.K. And then if you're paying attention, you, with whatever resources you have, robust or meager that, as they might be, you try to, you try to make sense mm-hmm. of what you're reading and think, well, does that ring true to me? This is a very precarious process, and it's going to vary really, really widely from person to person. Now, it happens that there were a couple of things in that account that, that I thought, oh, well, you know, okay, this may be flimsy, but that has the ring of truth, particularly how the two women, when there were follow-up questions to them, they didn't want to talk about it. It's like, mm-hmm. uh-uh, I, I'm not going it, to it, – it conveyed the sense that someone had gotten to them, uh, that it was not in their interest to speak. That might not be true. Mm-hmm. That's the impression it conveyed in my mind. So I'm going away. You're right, Jim. I'm going away with you know a, at least a halfway made sense of, oh, there's something going on here. Right. I think oh, we're going to have to wrap this up just so we can get on to other things. It also begins to drift into that question of, and all of you have raised it in different ways, what's, to what standards do we hold creative people and how much does that affect our enjoyment of their work, whether it's Wagner or Woody Allen or, you know, I mean, Richard Rodgers was like, horrible person <laughs> very damaging to people around him getting to um, know you yeah but i mean so i, I just uh, that's one of the issues you, you certainly don't want to let a bill cosby run wild hurting people and on the other hand it seems to me i i don't know i i think we might be a little different on this i still yeah. think it's okay to like louis ck until i, I get i'm not saying i don't like louis ck i watch his comedy specials i don't think it's not okay to like him I think it's just weird to ignore these allegations in light of other things that have been going on. We, you know, there's only a handful of allegations against President Trump, really, but we're perfectly willing to believe them. So um, why not Louis C.K.? And you know, he isn't physically assaulting anyone. Tape, saying some pretty egregious things. Yes, I guess you could say you have Louis C.K. on tape saying. Specifically gets paid to say those egregious things. All right, we have to stop so, now, yeah. so we'll have time for other stuff. Uh, we, we we will rest that case, and we will move on. We'll be back. All right. Here we are. We're back. We're back with the news uh, and a fine news. It is with Jim Chapterley and Rand Richards Cooper uh, and Teresa Kramer making not her last appearance on the news, but she just she won't be as familiar to us from now on. Um, all right. So uh, we are going to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the way diversity in casting has become a very complicated equation. Uh, Mandy Patinkin, uh, very much a, a big star, uh, had been asked to join the cast of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And then there was an uproar because he was going to basically replace an African-American actor uh, whose name I will screw up if I try to pronounce it. So um, – 
And it, it turned out that one of the reasons that they were bringing Patinkin in is because Josh Groban has left the show. Their ticket sales are slumping. They really feel as though they they needed somebody with a big name. Um, however, that involved that came at the expense of. Uh, an African-American actor. Um, this has come up in other situations. Somebody named Ed Screen or Screen. I don't really know who this person is, although I'm, a, I'm one who discovered it <laughs> on, on Twitter. But there was a big Twitter storm going on with the fact that he had been asked to be in uh, one of the Hellboy, in the newest Hellboy reboot. This is, would be a movie as a major Ben Damio, a half-Japanese character uh, in the Hellboy comic books. And he is not either half or at all Japanese. And once again, there was a wave of online protest. Uh, he pulled out. Uh, Mindy Patinkin has pulled out too. And and so this gets very complicated. And the more that you talk about it and think about it, the more complicated it gets. And Rand, I'm going to have you kick, kick us off because you said in our, your email, this is a rich topic. The relationship between identity, which is both an inherited and culturally politically assigned characteristic and role identity in drama. Yeah, actually, <laughs> the more I think about this topic, the the more confused I get. Um, uh, honestly, first of all, I think when any actor, especially if you're Ed Skrine, who none of us have heard of him, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So he was going to play a role in the reboot of the Hellboy um, comic-based movie, and he's, he writes, "I accepted the role unaware that the character in the original comics was of mixed Asian heritage." There's been intense conversation and considerable, understandable upset since that announcement, and I feel I must do what I feel is right. And so he, he talks about the importance of presenting the character in a culturally accurate way and that this holds significance for people and this is a responsibility that he can't neglect, so he's giving up the job. Now, when any actor who's not famous already gives up a job, you have to wonder why. What are, what are, the, what are the pressures involved in that? Mandy Patinkin it's clear, step back from that role because you know what? He just didn't need the, he didn't need any, the, the hassle. Mm -hmm. uh, he was replacing an, an African-American, actually an African actor uh, and there was, there, there was an uproar about it. The only reason they'd brought Mandy Patinkin in was to try to save the play by selling more tickets because he has a higher profile name. So a lot of his fellow actors who are less well-placed than he is to be able to pick and choose made an uproar and he probably said, oh, you know what, I, I, I don't want to squash anyone else's hopes in a way that might be embarrassing to me. So I don't really need this. I got a million other things to do. So the, the, the real question, I, I, I guess, is on the one hand, the simplest part of this, I guess, is a basic nuts and bolts jobs issue. If you look at the history of movies and TV until a very r recent moment, there was almost nothing other than a white face anywhere. Mm -hmm. So there's an attempt in a sort of systemic way to uh, to to make up for it and this and uh, by by now casting many more people of color and I think it's fair to say that this effort is incomplete uh you know uh, and we we've seen the various uh snafus and controversies at the Oscars uh, over recent years um but so the part of it is just like a jobs question let's let's put jobs where jobs were never granted before but the more complicated part of it is is a, a sort of um, a cultural appropriation and ethnic identity issue. Um, certainly, there are some there are some films, you know, like Twelve Years a Slave, where you would never do colorblind casting. Mm -hmm. Chiwetel Ejiofor is going to play, a black man is going to play that role, and it would be unimaginable and crazy for a white man to be put in that role. So. 
but when so when do we have to have an actor, whether it's uh, orient, gender orientation, sexual orientation, or race or ethnicity, who sort of has to play that role? Are there some roles where you say this is only for whites, or like Hamilton, mm-hmm. when they advertise for actors, they initially advertised for non-white actors. Why? Because. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda and the makers of the play had a very particular thing they wanted to say and do. Lin-Manuel Miranda, just last comment, said that Hamilton, I want Hamilton to look like the A-train uh, when you're on, 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 on your way to work. It, it needs to look like America now. And that was an act of revi- historical revisionism. Mm-hmm. So this comes up all kinds of, in all kinds of places, Teresa, including mm-hmm. with Jeffrey Tambor playing the lead role in Transparent. And there were an awful right. lot of people who felt this should go to a transsexual mm-hmm. actor or a transgendered actor or something mm-hmm. like that, not to you. On the other hand, you kind of want to see Jeffrey Tambor do that work. I feel like I'm back in the same place I was with, well, <laughs> with and, Louis C.K. There's, there's also this, you know, with the Jeffrey Tambor specifically question there, you know, I've always thought, well, there's this entire part where – you know, he still needs to look like a cisgendered man, right? Like there, he needs to be able to go back and forth. And um, they they ran into this in um, Orange is the New Black. And um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her they name. They had now. a pretty pretty what's, unique solution to that. Right? Though. What's her name? I'm sorry. Laverne Cox. Laverne Cox actually happens to have a twin brother, and so they were able to fix that. So there are sometimes other just very just sort of, you know, the details of of shooting something requires something a little different. But there are, you know, there are times when, you know, we make enough god-awfully stupid blow-em-up movies in this in this country that you, where it doesn't matter who's in the role, really, that, you know, we could be doing a lot more colorblind casting. Sort Getting of, blown up should you be You know, it doesn't always need to be Mark Wahlberg yeah. and, you know, uh, Harrison Ford. It can be... Um, you know, Denzel Washington and Michael B. Jordan, you know, like, so there are places to be doing that. But they, you know, and then we've got the we've got the Hamilton example where you're doing something very specific, I mean, which is genius. And it makes something that could have been very boring. And I don't know where he was going to find, like, you know, a cast of 100 white guys who could rap well enough to do that entire show anyway. It would have been... A no, but what if he... Hamilton was an excellent rapper, as it turns <laughs> yeah. out. Well, what if he could find one... Guys can't mm-hmm. rap. First of all, I mean, you know, we say all this kind of stuff, but then on other days we say, well, race is really ultimately kind of a socially constructed idea mm-hmm. as opposed to a biological reality. If we all do our 23andMe, uh, you know, genetic tests, it may mm-hmm. turn out that some of us are blacker than people people who self-identify as mm-hmm. black and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So what if there was a guy who kind of self-identified as white who could uh, and who but who could play black, who could rap? Robert Downey could, Jr.? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Ralph Macchio. I don't know. Yeah. You know, but, but you know what I'm saying. What if that yeah, person? Right, right. I, uh, uh, that's what I was thinking at the time of the Hamilton. There was this, as Rand says. Well, then this we've big, got a Rachel Dolezal, uh, like, <laughs> sort of situation, and we have to talk about it on the nose. Right, like, like, yeah. you know, you know <laughs> one, thing, one thing that this points up, I think, is, <laughs> there are ways in which casting against race frees you mm-hmm. of of certain of certain rote adherence to quote unquote real world categories and allows acting done by actors in a brilliant way to become the central focus. The Dylan thing, where mm-hmm. where all those different actors portrayed yeah. Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. that that was so explicitly non realistic and 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 controverted actual mm-hmm. reality in a way that that is freeing for, for an actor and actually opens the door to a kind of 
pure performance. Well, so we saw, I, you know, you brought up the example of when Ray Fiennes was um, asked yeah, to... Joseph Fiennes, yeah. Joseph Fiennes, sorry, Joseph. was asked to play Michael Jackson in a movie. And, you know, it got a lot of Twitter attention. And I think we may have talked about it on the nose or at least tossed it around as a, a possible topic at that mm-hmm. point. But... Um, it seemed to me it was a very clear choice to sort of cast this part absurdly, right? It was going to be kind of a ri- kind of ridiculous comedic movie, and they were like, okay, they, no one forgot Michael Jackson was black because they were <laughs> casting Joseph Fiennes in this role, and but that never happened, right? Like, I don't think that movie ever even happened, let alone Joseph Fiennes playing it, so... You know, it maybe, doesn't maybe always it go the other way. Maybe it was conceptual yeah. art. So yeah. I want to hear from Jim. I don't think I've heard from Jim on any of yeah. this so, so far. So to the to the uh, a weird little point is the original Hellboy starred Ron Perlman, mm-hmm. who clearly didn't meet the qualifications that are. Cur- he, what, he wasn't a devil. <laughs> he was, but he was not a half Asian devil. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, so. Well, Hellboy doesn't have to be half Asian, does he? <clears throat> I, I'm not sure. Somebody in he there has does. to be a demon. Yeah, no, no, no. Demon, but maybe yeah. Um, it seems to me if, if a role is specifically written for with with race in mind, then you sort of have to honor that. But other than that, are we mm-hmm. hoping to err in favor of going too far for a while? Go take these these bold casting moves now and and push the boundaries now and whatever. If there's a correction to that or something, if people really do go too far with that. Um, I mean, how it, I think in one of our emails you pointed out that um, Catherine Hepburn uh, had played an Asian woman. Right, <laughs> that's too far. So if whatever the corrective, Lawrence, to the, to Lawrence those Olivier things. in blackface as Othello in the nineteen sixty five version right, is right. probably because one far, of my right. jokes was it was Othello ever white? You pointed out. Almost always. For, yeah, for hundreds right, of years, right, Othello right. was always played by white men. When Ira Aldridge, the first black actor to play Othello on a major stage in, in London, there were the critics almost rioted over this idea that a black actor could play right. Othello. Could, could uh, play a black so person. when you say go too far, you mean too so far I in the you, other direction. So I think you overcorrect for a while, yeah. and, and if that's possible, you know, th- take these bold casting moves right now um, and, and not – and do the Hamilton thing and make it steroidal for a while. I mean, it's clear just from the Academy Awards alone that corrections have to take place. Um, and they may as well err in favor of overcorrecting and, until it becomes something we're not talking about. All right. That will be the last word on this. We only have like three or four minutes uh, tops, I think, to have this conversation. But um, in fact, uh, James Warren, a press critic for the Pointer Institute, whom I'm uh, very admiring of, uh, had a lot of fun with the fact that news organizations this week kind of went crazy covering the fall of prices at Whole Foods. Because of the merger, because of Amazon, uh, prices dropped. And so uh, you had everybody from TechCrunch to Bloomberg to Money Magazine to Reuters reporting uh, on the price of responsibly farmed tilapia. Um, and so, Teresa, my question t- was, how is this a news story? Isn't this something like grocery supplements they have to pay and have their advertisements <laughs> yes. in the paper selling what their prices are? It should be. And I think what the re- the point the reporters may not be making is what effect that Amazon taking over Whole Foods and dropping all these prices will have on the other stores nearby because it's making it 
suddenly more accessible to the people who couldn't afford it before. And if they keep Amazoning Whole Foods, it becomes a much bigger player than it used to be. But they're just talking about avocados instead of actually making that. Yeah, point. but you might be able to get that avocado drone dropped right to your front door yeah. in five minutes now. <laughs> then it'll get all bruised. So that's big. That's big. Well, I, you know, Jim, I did have that question too. That you know, beyond, beyond all this, for a certain group of people, this is a really big event. Mm-hmm. You know, because in fact, we're all living in an Amazon world already, and we're all living in a Whole Foods world already. This is just for this fragment of the population that isn't buying everything from Walmart. But, you know, there's a way in which, I don't know, like Jeff Bezos knows everything about us already, including what price point we need. Yeah, Jeff Bezos knows way too much about us. Um, I I will, as a sidebar, we were talking about this earlier, no one will ever come to me for financial advice. But just on a lark, I had bought some shares in Whole Foods. So so I took that ride, baby. And, uh, and, and, uh, And I won't be retiring, but I feel like I'm going to hang a shingle out pretty soon because uh, because I smelled something coming. I really didn't. It was totally accidental. We live in a town with two Whole Foods, <laughs> right? So I mean, we're in a, we're fully in the drop zone. So whatever he's collecting, you know, remember he started as a book salesman, and his larger plan was to garner this big email list, and then the larger plan was to sell everything. So I'm not sure where he goes with knowing. How many hand-picked uh, kiwis you buy a week? But in in some way, there's metadata embedded in that for Jeff Bezos. You get the last word, Rand. Well, I think Jim pointed out uh, something important. If you go back far enough, you remember Amazon started out as an online book vendor, and uh, and the company had quarter after quarter of losses, even as investors poured in more and more money. It became a sort of uh, uh, you know, in, in, in investors' um, brain teaser: how, how how many years will go by with the stock price rising before Amazon has to has to actually earn something? Well, as you said, he had the larger vision, and the larger vision was Amazon will do everything for everyone, mm-hmm. and 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 probably the reason that we're paying attention to this story, either, Colin, it's, it's, it's the ultimate trivialization of our attention, or in fact, it's keeping a bead on the behemoth that lurks and grows larger beneath our waters. All right. Well, on that uh, cheering note, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll make some endorsements. Jim Chatbillion will be giving out some stock tips. I'm going to stop using Peter Frampton's stop tips. Stop, I can't even say it. Stock tips. Now that I know a, clo- a guitarist closer to home with his stock tips. All the food is harvested from the earth. And don't forget to wear your dear T-shirt. This just in, the price of the earthbound organic lettuce in aisle five has dropped 15 cents. Our Whole Foods Action 8 reporting team is following this story. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. We do not recommend the farm-raised Amanda fish. The part of Bill Curry was played by James Earl Jones. Learn about the Women's Land Army on our Labor Day show, and we'll be back on Tuesday with a scramble. And now, back to Colin. Yes, now it is time to make endorsements, recommendations, and stock tips. Uh, Teresa Kramer, why don't you get us going? I've been listening to a podcast called The Nod, and it's sort of this obscure little look into sort of black American life through sometimes 
ridiculous topics like why so many black YouTube conspiracy theorists are obsessed with the Illuminati. And then there's another episode about, you know, the pros and cons of putting your kid in an Afrocentric um, preschool. But it's really fascinating. It's really funny. It's like a different take on race than we're used to hearing these days, which can be so contentious. And this is just fun, really. The Nod. Mm-hmm. So you just is, is it on any of the well-known platforms? I, it's on all of them. I got all, it all on. The yeah, platforms. yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. The Nod. All right, uh, Jim Chaplin. What do you have for us? I have two quick things. Uh, one thing has been keeping me amused at the uh, at my gymnasium visit. Um, it's called Genius of the Modern World on Netflix, and it's a three one-hour historical looks at Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, exactly what you want to be thinking about when you're pedaling a, a fake bicycle. Uh, it's hosted by this historian, Bettany Hughes, and um, it's made me want to go back to the gym, which very few things do. So when uh, you say it's keeping you amused, not because it's funny, but just no, no, but it's really it's it's really informative. I mean, you hear about I didn't know that Marx had a horrible skin condition that was nearly debilitating, uh, and that it affected his work, uh, and somehow it's affecting us in some way now. Um, and lastly, Sounds like the night of, exa- yeah, the ripple effect <laughs> yeah. is huge. It turns out. Uh, the heartbreak of psoriasis. Um, so uh, on September 16th at Mitchell Farms in Salem, I'll be playing, I think, for about the 12th year in a row, uh, their music festival with Aztec Two-Step, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and the Pousset Dart Band. And we've been doing that for a long time. And these are this is a retirement farm for horses, which doesn't <laughs> seem possible, but they have a nice deal when they get there. And where is it again? It's in Salem, Connecticut. Salem, Connecticut. Oh, okay. What's the date, Jim? September 16th. It's really fun. They've really made it a big deal. That's a great lineup. Well, we have wide walker aisles now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, from hip to hip replacement. Right, exactly. Um, Yeah, I actually got a lot of really good stock tips from Jonathan Edwards for a while. but uh, He's gone soft. He's gone soft. He's in mutual funds. I don't know what they're doing. He's like Jim Cramer. He's a parody of himself. All right. What have you got for us, Ray Cooper? Uh, I'll uh, just uh, revisit that book that I'm going to recommend called The Naughty 90s by David Friend. It's a curious mix of participatory journalism and social commentary and uh, a sort of uh, scrapbook uh, of the libido as it expressed I itself like the way in the 1990s. Naughty. Naughty. <laughs> kind of leaning into naughty. And uh, he, he tracks down such uh, semi-forgotten figures of, of, of 90s scandal as uh, Heidi, uh, Heidi Fleiss. Right. And, uh, and Paul, he d- interviews Paula Jones. And he also attends, along with his wife and a dozen other people, a, um, a session of OM therapy. That's uh, orgasmic mm-hmm. meditation therapy. Oh. At a, uh, at, a, at, at, a, at a therapy center in uh, San Francisco. I'd recommend that book. Do I have time for one yeah, quick? You do. Okay. The other thing, a very different, I I'm, would recommend that everyone uh, go down and walk around and, and, and take in the, the new Yukon Hartford campus, mm-hmm. which has just, just opened. Um, I've spent some time down there because I was writing something about it. It's designed by Robert A.M. Stern, the, the Yale based uh, architect. It's, it is a gorgeous building uh, and they fascinated, made a fascinating salvage and reuse of the old Hartford Times building, which itself was a salvage and reuse of a Stanford White uh, church in Manhattan that was destroyed, that was torn down in 1920 uh, to make way for the MetLife building. So the campus uh, is, uh, is, is gorgeous. Really, the campus is that building. But you can walk up Prospect Street and also go to the Social Work Building. This is $140 million of our taxpayers' money. So get your money's worth. <laughs> go down and look at this 
really impressive building. I did exactly that last Friday evening. It's part of my column this week, but I also went from there up onto the River Front Bridge uh, where there are, I think, 16 Lincoln-themed sculptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lincoln Financial made them possible. But they're by significant American sculptors, including Don Gummer, a husband of Meryl Streep. Um, and they're about these uplifting themes. And if you're sort of sick of all the divisiveness about Civil War statues we've been through, these are great statues to look at. So add that to your walk. I, I did the same thing that Rand's talking about, though. That whole area there is really, really beautiful. So uh, I will also endorse uh, – I tried to get everybody interested in uh, Princess Diana this week. Nobody was interested. <laughs> And Princess Diana. Read Hillary Mantel's piece in The Guardian about Princess Diana. I'm not even sure what point it makes, but because it's written by Hillary Mantel, it is a, a beautiful piece of writing uh, and lots of fun to read. Um, I'm also going to endorse Native Corn. It, this is like the perfect time for Native Corn. Is that, and, a, is that a band? Yeah, Native Corn, yeah. They're playing actually at the same thing at the horse farm. And they um, give great stock tips. Right. <laughs> the, uh, and I'm, I'm going to endorse a method of buttering corn. So buttering corn is kind of a complicated, complicated thing. So, if it's no, good, no, you don't you're, need so, butter. So Rand, Rand yeah. is doing the thing where you just twist the corn back and forth in an actual uh, stick of butter. I can't, I can't even be on the same planet with people who do that. that. We're just back to animals. Now here's – but obviously just butter on your knife tends to slide and slip around and stuff like that. Here's what you do. You take a little piece of bread, a little chunk of bread, and you put the butter on the bread. Now you have the butter sticking to the bread and you can very easily rub it along the surface of the corn without either burning your hand from the corn or having the butter slip and slide all over the place. Or you could do the really civilized thing. Take the corn right off the cob. Right. Well, I do that too. But yeah. So um, I will endorse a particular farm. I visited Maisie's Farm, which is in the Farmington Meadows, uh, sort of down sort of below where uh, Miss um, Porter School is. And uh, Maisie is actually the name of the dog there. I think mm-hmm. Lauren is the person who runs the farm. Um, well, I'll see. Do I have time for one more thing? So yeah, I'll do one, one more thing. And that is um, <clears throat> I'm going to say a word on behalf of my favorite football team, the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> Uh, and the reason I'm going to say this is, you know, the people – I don't know how many people understand this. The Packers are a publicly owned nonprofit corporation. They are owned by 360,000 people who own shares of this. This is your stock tip? Yeah. I was, yeah. You know, I was going to – Green Bay? No, people buy the stock. It's the worst stock ever. Because you can't sell it. You can't you, ever redeem right, it. You can't. It's the worst. But, I mean, that's sort of an amazing thing. And I think it goes with a lot of other things that are part of the Packers' personality. Aaron Rodgers this week stood up for Colin Kaepernick. He's really the most prominent athlete to say – Kaepernick's getting a raw deal because of his politics that he should be on a football team. And it's also part of the tradition the Packers have of every day during their uh, summer training camp, little kids stand there and the Packers players take a kid's bike and with that kid cross the bridge over to the, pa- pa- the, pra- the Packer practice facility. And it's, it's this incredibly heartwarming thing, at least if you're a Packers fan. You get all misty-eyed. Anyway, thanks so much to our incredible pan- panel, Rand Richards-Cooper, Jim Chapley, and Teresa Kramer. Don't be a stranger. <laughs> and don't get all weird up there in Brattleboro. <laughs>